Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Creative Life, The Art of Getting Out of Our Own Way. The talk was given by Bandu Dunham on April 17, 2021, via Zoom. Bandu is an internationally recognized glass artist and teacher, and author of Creative Life. If there is benefit in the talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Bandu Dunham. Thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. All of you, including all the anonymous little black squares. I've been one of those many times myself. So, so what I did is I've got a few quotes here that I thought I would just kind of read and, and see where the discussion goes. Uh, I could even quote myself from my book, Creative Life. This is the shameless self-promotion. I have a whole chapter in here on subconscious sabotage, you know, self-sabotage. Here's a quote from uh, John Steinbeck. He said, I guess a man is the only kind of varmint that sets his own trap, baits it, and then steps in it. I think that's pretty <laughs> applicable. Everything that I might have to say about creativity is not just for artists. Obviously, it applies to the arts. But we all have to use creative faculties to solve our problems in day-to-day -day life, whether it's in our jobs or just getting out the door in the morning. You know, we have to summon a certain amount of creative energy and organization to manifest that energy. So looking at the obstacles to creativity or what our, our sabotage is or how we need to get out of our own way these are ways of managing, you know, creating a logistical framework in which to manifest our creative energy. It's not like any of us are short on creative energy. We're all very creative, naturally. It's a natural function. It's an effort to, to not be creative. The problem is that we often don't know how to manage that energy, or we don't have a framework, a successful or useful um, or practical framework in which to manifest that creativity. So we might dissipate our creative energy just through dreaming about, you know, oh, what am I going to do? Here's a good one. What am I going to do when I win the lottery? You know, have you ever gotten in those conversations? It's kind of a conversation you can have with anybody anytime. But, you know, if I win the lottery, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. You know, all these, we have these fantastic creative ideas, some of which are really good, good and helpful to other people, whatever. I'm going to use my million dollars to do such and such. Uh, but it's taking place in the realm of fantasy. And actually, that kind of fantasy, I find, tends to actually dissipate creative energy. So when we have a creative idea and we let the steam out of it prematurely, or if we talk about it in a way that is, in a sense, not respectful of the potential of what creative energy is, if we don't respect a certain sacredness of creative energy, then our creative ideas can just kind of dissipate. And I think that's an experience that a lot of people have. A lot of the people who look at 
uh, at artists and go, oh my God, I couldn't do anything. I could never do that. I could never live that way. I could never, I can't even draw a straight line as if drawing a straight line has anything to do with being an artist. So that's one thing I wanted to say. How we uh, hold respect for our creative energy has a lot to do with how successful we will be in managing, manifesting and managing it. And having some kind of a framework in which to do that, it might be an, an art medium, but it might just be a body of habits that we cultivate for ourselves. It might be spiritual practices, you know, morning yoga practice, morning meditation practice, things we do. You know, if you really want, I suppose you can include having a morning cup of coffee and reading the paper. For some people, that's a framework in which to start manifesting their creative energy because you sort of, you're groggy, you start to wake up, you have this little ritual that kind of you can do on automatic pilot and then you kind of land and start thinking about your day. And, you know, that's legitimate. I don't consider it the highest manifestation of creative management, but it's it works and it can be very useful. So it's pretty practical. One of the things I wanted to bring up is that creativity is the opposite of neurosis. And by that, uh, I'm referring to the definition of neurosis as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting something different to happen. I'm not sure who came up with that definition of neurosis, or I've even heard it used as a definition of insanity. But doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, expecting something different to happen. It's certainly neurotic, maybe insane, but creativity is the opposite of that. So creativity is actually a way to be sane. You know, we try different things in order to get different results. And again, that's not just in the arts, but it's just it's in life in general. Here's a quote that's from uh, David Bales and Ted Orland. They've got this great book called Art and Fear. There's actually a couple of books by that title. And they talk a lot about the creative process, and it's really very practical. One of the things they have here to say is, if art is made by ordinary people, then you'd have to allow that the ideal artist would be an ordinary person too, with the whole usual mixed bag of traits that real human beings possess. This is a giant hint about art, because it suggests that our flaws and weaknesses, while often obstacles to our getting work done, are a source of strength as well. Something about making art has to do with overcoming things, giving us a clear opportunity for doing things in ways we have always known we should do them. So that's an example of a kind of framework in which to think about creative energy. There's obstacles to be overcome. And that's even inherent in the process. In fact, I would suggest it's possible, maybe doesn't apply to anyone in this meeting, of course, but it's possible that some of the obstacles that we have in our creative pursuits or in life in general are things that we maybe subconsciously create for ourselves in order to manifest a kind of challenge that makes us feel like we're alive. In one sense, I think that's what art really is all about. The spiritual teacher E.J. Gold, who's also an artist, he said that artists start by getting themselves in trouble. That's an artist's job is to get himself in trouble. He had a way of working sometimes where he would make, uh, and this is what the surrealists used to do too, psychic automatism, where you just do a squiggle, make a squiggle on the canvas. And then you look at it and go, okay, well, what can I make out of this? 
So that's an example of how an artist might get themselves in trouble by starting down a path, and then you have to find your way out of it in a creative way to make something useful or worthwhile, desirable out of that. I certainly have got myself in trouble enough times. <laughs> I do some pretty complicated projects. They don't need to be, except that that's what I'm into doing. So I create I create kinetic projects out of glass. I'm working on one right now that has um, it's great. You know, it's almost done. It's it's pretty much done. But it's uh, I have a um, saying around my studio, and some of you artists can probably relate to this, which is that anything worth doing is worth doing twice. Meaning, I I screw up the first time. I've got to go back and redo it because I realize that I uh, did not take something into consideration or forgot something, or some, for some reason it needs to be redone. Sometimes I think that actually does lead to a better result when you go back and have to reconfigure something to meet the circumstances better. But also there's ways in which doing something right, and this isn't just in the domain of art, but in anything, you know, in business, uh, doing something right the first time can actually be uh, a real saver of time and energy. Someone pointed out that, um, you know, in, in business, it, when you're working on a project, order for a customer or whatever it is, and it gets screwed up the first time, it's like, you did it wrong, you took shortcuts the first time because there wasn't time to do it right. But then somehow there always seems to be time to do it right when you have to redo it the second time. People know what I'm talking about? You can nod your black square up and down. We should make, they should have that in Zoom, shouldn't they? That should have a way that you can make your square like kind of, Go up and down or make gestures. I guess you can do you can do reactions, right? You can put little thumbs up and stuff, like yay, even if you're just an anonymous black square. But yes. So anyway, so anything worth doing is worth doing twice. Our flaws and weaknesses, while often obstacles to our getting work done, are a source of strength as well. Something about making art has to do with overcoming things giving us a clear opportunity for doing things in ways we have always known we should do them, manifesting that creative possibility. And we just need to kind of get over a threshold to do it. You know, in, in classical Greek theater, there's that the dramatic arc that we, we talk about, right? I forget all the, all the stages of the dramatic arc, but there's a process of conflict and the conflict, you know, hits the plateaus and goes up and down. And then there's resolution and a conclusion to the drama. There's an arc that the story goes through. And that was archetypally designed by people who had thought about the course of human events. What is the usual course of human events? And what creates a satisfying conclusion, you know, a satisfying feeling of resolution when you uh, participate in the, uh, the catharsis, actually, of, of drama. And um, sometimes we just create that for ourselves. And that can be very beneficial. And sometimes we do it in ways that are not so beneficial to ourselves or those around us. Here's a quote from another book called Fear of Art, a completely different book. This is more of a historical survey from 1986 by Moshe Carmeli Weinberger. Uh, so it's like an historical analysis of, of art and society. He says, anything that seems difficult to understand creates psychological discomfort. This malaise has sometimes brought great losses to world culture through the wanton destruction of artistic works. Some disturbed people take pleasure in mutilating or destroying art objects, 
just as pyromaniacs enjoy the sight of architectural works going up in flames. Artists sometimes destroy their own creations in moments of anger or despair. Extreme sensitivity to the reactions of their viewers or an inordinate desire for perfection may impel an artist to burn, slash, or otherwise wreck a finished work. Hmm. Perfectionism. Can people relate to that, that idea of ever been working on something, whether a piece of artwork or, or a project of some kind? And it's like just so frustrating. You want to trash the thing, you know, destroy it. Maybe destroy yourself as well. Set your whole studio on fire and just burn, you know. No, we don't want to do that. But, you know, the impulse is there. You can recognize that impulse, that very self-destructive impulse. So again, if we can cultivate a sane and manageable framework in which to manifest our creative energy, then we don't get into these fits of despair. We may have frustration, disappointment, all those things. But the kind of self-destructive despair doesn't end up happening, ideally. Uh, This is, again, from Bales and Orland. In the ideal, that is to say, real, artist, fears not only continue to exist, they exist side by side with the desires that complement them, perhaps drive them, certainly feed them. Naive passion, which promotes work done in ignorance of obstacles, becomes, with courage, informed passion, which promotes work done in full acceptance of those obstacles. So the bad news is that obstacles aren't going to go away. We don't really get to avoid obstacles or dodge them completely. But in creative life, as an artist or in anything else we're working on, you know, in spiritual practice, which is a form of creative life, very creative use of one's energies, you know, fears not only continue to exist, they exist side by side with the desires that complement them, perhaps drive them, certainly feed them. So knowing what we're getting into, you know, when sometimes when I start a project, I get an enthusiastic idea for a project. Oh, this is going to be cool. And then I start on it and it's kind of like, oh, what have I got myself into? You know, that's an example of getting oneself in trouble with art. And it's really very much a normal part of the process. You know, there's a quote from Bob Marley. He said. Uh, Whoever you love is going to break your heart. Uh, the secret, you know, is to find out, figure out who is worth the pain <laughs> to hang out with. You know, it's not like you're really going to find people who are painless to be with. Or if you are, it's not going to be very satisfying or deep level of, of connection you're going to be experiencing. I'm reminded also of something that Elizabeth Gilbert said in her book, Big Magic. And she talks about fear. And uh, it's like when you, when you undertake a creative project or really in just your day-to-day life, you know, fear kind of wants to grab the wheel, take the wheel and take control of where you're going. And she says she's cultivated a relationship with fear that, you know, and insecurity and all that, where it's like, I am going for a drive. And she talks to her fear, you know, metaphorically, she says, I'm going for a drive. You can come along but you can not drive the car. You cannot control the radio. You can't control what windows are open. You can just come along and you have to shut up and sit there. You know, Because you can't get rid of fear necessarily. You can't always get rid of it. It's going to be along for the ride, but you don't have to let it drive. You don't have to let it control the radio. You know? And I think that's a pretty healthy attitude to have. A definition that I heard once of courage 
is um, to have fear, but to act. So it's like, like a formula, like courage equals fear plus action. So just not to be paralyzed by our fear, not to be made ineffective by our fear. Just act anyway. I think as an artist, you, you have to develop a certain amount of thick of a thick skin. You know, a willingness to do what you think is the right thing to do, even in the face of negative feedback. And it's tricky because sometimes the feedback is accurate. <laughs> you know, you're doing the wrong thing. And how do you know? Ultimately, you just have to be your own your own judge of that and be willing to learn from mistakes. Uh, a lot of times you can't tell something's a mistake until much later down the road and you have to invest the energy in it. Another one of my favorite authors, Robert Henry, The Art Spirit, he says that to be an artist is a privilege for which one must be willing to pay. And that kind of goes against the naive image that a lot of people have of being an artist. Like, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars. You know, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a rich millionaire and people will have to indulge my whims and uh, put up with my obnoxious personality because I am a great artist. That's a great life strategy. I mean, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a thick skin and you have to have some degree of vulnerability to reality or just be willing to pay. I mean, sometimes it might be that you are never going to get a kind of recognition that um, is enough to support you to live on. And you just have to do what you're doing in some kind of obscurity. And that's actually a perfectly honorable path as far as I'm concerned. There's millions of people out there pursuing art in some, you know, less than professional way. And I think they're contributing something very valuable to the world. Not everything has to be on a kind of dramatic scale that we we tend to think of when we think of the arts or artists. So there's there's a lot of different ways that we can manifest creative energy. But ultimately, you have to take your own counsel. I think it's it's a matter of maturity to know what kind of feedback you you should accept from other people and what is really useful feedback and what's just someone not getting what you're doing and being willing to pay, which is, uh, you know, not always easy, not always even possible, depending on what form of art you're pursuing. It seems like if you don't take some chances, Hmm. you you might not find what you're really meant to do or what, what you can really do. Yeah. And the thing is, usually what we have to do, what you or I have to do is something that no one else has had to do or has to do now. It's like it's that's why it's our work. You know, that's as an artist, the thing that you have to do is the thing that you do. That's why you are doing it. No one else is doing it. I'm I'm not an artist like or I would not consider myself one. But what you talked about, the framework and I built like a. I would say routine or how can I free up energy in my day so that I can be creative, whatever it means. Yeah, I can maybe create a wonderful meal. This is more a kind of art. But if I have not the time or I'm completely distracted or I'm not organized, I can't do that. How can I free up energy to be creative? I, I listened to one interview like years ago from a very famous, I don't know, old man. And he has his routine for his day at two o'clock. He's making a 
walked at four, he's doing that. So it's completely necessary for him to set up this energy-saving life structures framework that he can be in between creative. And that I will never forget it because that, that hit me. And I said, that's clever. The principle that strikes, the famous thing about Einstein, how he had a closet full of brown suits. And every day he would pick out a brown suit. You know, he'd just pick out a clean one. So he always just wore a brown suit. He didn't spend any energy thinking about frivolous things like what to wear. He had to think about how to keep his hair frizzy. That was his main. <laughs> Procrastination, I find, is a great way of wasting energy. I mean, you've probably noticed this. The thing, you know, that's sitting there on your desk that you walk by. It's like, oh, I should deal with that. Oh, I should deal with that. Oh, I should deal with that. And it's there for like a month. And by the time a month has gone by, you have expended much more energy thinking about how you should do it or reasons why you can't do it right now than it would have taken just to do the darn thing right away. Uh, People know that experience? I'll use procrastination to accomplish everything else. Yeah, you get the house really clean, but you haven't dealt with the other thing yet. Or other creative projects that I'm um, maybe not so afraid of. I actually heard someone once frame that in a positive way. They were It was this lady living out on a ranch in Montana or something somewhere. She said, you know, there is so much stuff to do on the ranch that if I don't feel like doing one thing, there's something else that needs doing. You know? And I thought, you know, that's actually pretty good to look at, at it from a positive framework instead of like, Oh, I'm so bad. I'm not saying you're saying this, but I, I often get to this thing where like, I'm so bad, I'm procrastinating because I'm not doing the thing I should do while I'm doing these other things. And it's true. The other things that you do might actually be good. I mean, the floor does need to get vacuumed now and then. So sometimes procrastination is the only way I get my, get my studio clean. But it's definitely a two-edged sword. Procrastination can be a way to undermine our effectiveness in other ways. I want to talk about resistance because it's something that we have to come to terms with. You know, there's resistance, there's internal resistance that we do, you know, like procrastination being one or getting distracted. And then there's external resistance or ways to use external resistance. Uh, And I think we can have a conscious relationship to resistance. So here's a couple quotes that relate to it. Uh, Here's a quote from Jackson Pollock. He says, my painting does not come from the easel. I hardly ever stretch my canvas before painting. I prefer to tack the unstretched canvas on the hard wall or floor. I need the resistance of a hard surface. On the floor, I feel more at ease. I feel nearer, more part of the painting. Since this way, I can walk around it, work from the four sides, and literally be in the painting. This is akin to the Indian sand painters of the West. This idea of being able to participate more fully in what you're doing, so painting being an analogy for anything else we might do, by laying out a situation in which there's some resistance, you know, that that surface to press against, to get into it. Here's another quote. This is from uh, one of my favorite books, a sort of obscure book, but it's called A Way of Working. Uh, The Spiritual Dimension of Craft. It's from Parabola Books. I think you can still get it. 
It's a collection of essays. This one's really great. This is just a couple paragraphs from an essay called Close to Zero. I often read this quote to my students when I'm teaching glassblowing classes. Much more of the craftsman's strength goes into the use of his tools than is ever needed by the material. Indeed, it is by means of this excess strength that he gains control of the tool. The material resists, the tool overcomes. There is no need here for extra strength. Yet the extra strength is there in the tool, not potentially nor in abeyance, but there. Whether he works with a chisel on wood, a shuttle through threads, or his fingers on clay, the craftsman in part holds back at the same time that he pushes the tool forward. Thus, he adds his own resistance to the resistance of the material, and then provides the extra strength needed to overcome it. He resists in the same direction as the material. In general, if the material resists more, he resists more. If the material resists less, he resists less. With so great a proportion of the resistance coming from him, the resistance of the material is relatively small. The material yields in an atmosphere that is always close to zero. The finest control becomes possible. Mike is demonstrating this for us right now as we talk. These, these opposites, the resistance that he purposely creates and the strength with which he overcomes it, enable the craftsman to be as if in the material itself. He knows its instant behavior and adjusts to it. His movements may be sudden or slow, or they may be defeated, but there is no surprise. The notice he receives from the material is continuous with its movement. He listens as the wood awakens, as the clay stirs. The progression of the work as the steps are completed is for him a joy, and energy in him grows from these completions and beginnings. The energy is renewed in the interval between successive steps. That essay goes on in a lot of a lot more detail about the nature of working with material and the resistance that the material puts up and how you match that resistance. But I, I like it because not only is it useful for artists or craftspeople working with materials, but I think it's a metaphor for spiritual evolution, you know, for spiritual work, that we work in an atmosphere in which our own resistance is being brought up to like show us what we need to work on. And if I can yield my internal resistance, you know, if I can, if I can summon or in a sense invoke what my internal resistance to personal evolution is, you know, if I can see face to face what my issues are and then surrender that in the same breath that I'm seeing it through self-observation, uh, there's, an, there's an energy that's there and there's a, a, a movement that happens that has a, uh, a depth that's very powerful, I think. But it's analogous to this work with materials where the consistency of the material 
you know, is under your control. Well, with glass, you know, you can control the consistency of the material by how you heat it. But you don't want it to get too soft and floppy or you can't control it at all. The material needs to have some degree of resistance in it. And you need to put some degree of resistance in your tool. So you're holding back at the same time you're pushing forward. And that's how you get really precise control. So that atmosphere of close to zero is something I think we can uh, consider in the environment we create for ourselves or the framework in which we're doing our creative work. This is another quote from um, Art and Fear, Bales and Orland. Uh, As Stanley Kunitz once commented, the poem in the head is always perfect. Resistance begins when you try to convert it into language. Most artists don't daydream about making great art. They daydream about having made great art. What artist has not experienced the feverish euphoria of composing the perfect thumbnail sketch, first draft, negative, or melody, only to run headlong into a stone wall trying to convert that tantalizing hint into the finished mural, novel, photography, sonata? The artist's life is frustrating, not because the passage is slow, but because he imagines it to be fast. <clears throat> that, one's, that one's too close to home. <laughs> the artist's life is frustrating, not because the passage is slow, but because he imagines it to be fast. Like that saying, if you don't want to be disappointed, then don't appoint yourself. <laughs> don't set up appointments for yourself. Uh, that will then be frustrated by reality. But it's true, we get an initial inspiration of this thing, you know, it's, whether it's a poem or a, a sculpture or whatever, that's perfect, you know, and you see it, you see it, and it's perfect. And then you try to manifest, and it's like, oh, why is there such a gap between my vision <laughs> and the thing itself? Sometimes it's just that in the mind, the mind lives in these sort of platonic ideals of perfection. It's very simple in the mind. That's actually a form of naivete to think things are perfect and simple in that way. There is an essential simplicity to reality, but to get there, you have to go through uh, the challenges of manifestation. You know, how do you bring things into manifestation? This is a poem by Charles Bukowski. It's, it's pretty straightforward. I think it's called Air and Light or something like that. But here it is. You know, I've either had a family, a job, something has always been in the way, but now I've sold my house. I found this place, a large studio. You should see the space and the light. For the first time in my life, I'm going to have a place and the time to create. No, baby. If you're going to create, you're going to create whether you work 16 hours a day in a coal mine or you're going to create in a small room with three children while you're on welfare. You're going to create with part of your mind and your body blown away. You're going to create blind, crippled, demented. You're going to create with a cat crawling up your back while the whole city trembles in earthquake, bombardment, flood, and fire. Baby, air and light and time and space have nothing to do with it. And don't create anything except maybe a longer life to find new excuses for. Bukowski, ah, man, there's a fellow who understood a bunch of things about life, I have to say. 
pretty clear. You just do it, you know. There's so many excuses we make for why we can't be creative. Yeah, we just have to stop doing that. <laughs> just do the creative thing that's in front of us. Well, it's safer not to. I just read a quote somewhere. Critics are watch the men below on the battlefield from a high distance and then come down and criticize the survivors. <laughs> you know, it's very safe to have these excuses and observe things from a, from a distance. But to actually get in there on the, be on the field, as they say, manifesting is another matter. I have a question about yeah. what your take on how failure relates to creativity. You know, like, does it spur creativity? Does it shut it down? Both. And also, how does having basic mastery of a certain medium free you up for creativity? Is that an important part? Well, yeah. I mean, to start at the end, I think you, you need to have a certain degree of mastery to be spontaneous. I think when people try to be too spontaneous in an art form, you know, or you know, martial arts is an example of this too, where you, you develop, you know, or you, as they say, you know, you learn the rules so that you can break them. But if you don't learn the rules first, you don't under, you don't know what you're doing when you break them. The point of, of breaking the rules is to take the understanding of the principles of why those rules are there, and then to stretch reality beyond that, or to stretch what people think is possible. To use glass as, as an example, because I use glass and a few of the listeners use glass. You know, glass has a physical physical properties, and it is going to follow those physical properties. It's going to flow. It's going to drip. It can break. It, you know, if it's a sharp edge, it can cut you. It can burn you. But if you're able to uh, have a dialogue with the material, you can get it to do pretty much whatever you want. But it's a dialogue. You have to be willing to give and take a little bit and understand the fact that the glass wants to flow uh, when it's soft. It wants to flow in, in line with gravity in the absence of any other force. So if you, for example, you're making a sculpture and you want the glass to flow in a certain way, if you turn the sculpture at a certain angle so that gravity is pulling the glass in the direction you want it to move, woohoo, you know, magic. It does exactly what you want. Whereas if you're holding the piece in, in another angle, you can't get it to do what you want, no matter what you want, no matter how brilliant you are. So just understanding basic rules of the physics of the material enables you to get it to do things. And when you're good at it, you can do things that are amazing. I mean, you know, in, in glass blowing, you see some people with such skill that they make things happen that looks completely like magic. I mean, even to those who know glass, it just looks like magic. But they're just controlling the forces. Uh, that are acting on the glass and in dialogue with material. So that idea of being spontaneous based on mastery, I think you don't have to be a master master to be able to do that, but just a basic understanding of what you're working with enables you to sort of explore things. And failure, I think, is a way that you learn. <laughs> you know, you learn that mastery by trying things out. Sometimes there are rules, rules about a material or rules about some course of study, and we just can't get ourselves to follow the rules. But if you break the rules often enough from a naive perspective and you have negative consequences to deal with, then you start to understand what the rules are, why they're there, 
Don't touch the hot stove. Don't lie on the beach without sunscreen <laughs> if you're fair-skinned. Um, you know, there are reasons for some of those suggestions. Sometimes we have to learn them the hard way. And failure also, I think, can give us a good measure of humility. I think mastery without humility can be sort of disastrous. So I think uh, failure and what is labeled as failure is an important part of the process. I don't think we can function without it. I believe that for every failure, you need seven successes. Because both success and failure are information. They also inform your psyche. And if you get, you need some success so you're willing to beat your head against the brick wall, so to speak. You need some success so you have the guts to go and fail against. And then the zone, finding the zone. As, as a craftsperson, when you find the zone, it's, it's as if the, the work makes itself and it's using your hands to do it. Yeah. So what is my strategy to find the zone? And then how can I expand upon the zone using failure and success? A friend of mine was teaching some trainings about, um, I don't know exactly what the details were anymore, but it was they were talking about success and failure and positive and negative feedback. And we tend to give them a lot of uh, emotional weight, like, oh my God, I'm a failure. But he suggested you just, instead of no or failure, you just use, say, beep. So, you know, something is either successful or it's beep. Beep is just a very neutral kind of sound. You know, take the emotional charge out of it. So you get a yes or you get a beep. You get a beep, you try something else, right? So, um, I don't know if you could really go through life that way all the time, but it's an interesting angle on it. Like, don't treat success, uh, don't treat failure as if it were the opposite of success. You know, maybe it's not. Maybe failure is not the opposite of success. You know, there's a, there's definitely a relationship between success and failure. They they feed off of each other for sure. Anyone else on that? I I guess like stories of people taking failures and turning them into a new a new creation or just knowing that you struggle with failure and then you know you end up with a beautiful product yeah, it's like they say uh to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat glass blowers we experience that a lot but it's it's just a principle in life there was a, there's a famous art glass collectors the Saxes, they live in San Francisco or did. Um, and there was an earthquake and their whole glass collection or most of it, large part of it was smashed, destroyed by the earthquake. So what they did is they called in a glass artist who's known for um, making collage collections of things. And they asked him to take the broken pieces and make something out of them. <laughs> so that's what he did, you know, with the permission of the original artist. Yeah. But he took that failure or that tragedy, and he turned it into something of of worth again. And uh, that's kind of what we all need to do, I think, under various circumstances. It's very creative. Yeah. Life gives you lemons. Make lemonade. (laughs) And, of course, these people are very wealthy, so they could, like, afford to not be too upset. But it was, yeah. A shame to have a bunch of glass get smashed. So it goes. From Naum Gabo, who's a sculptor, 
early 20th century. The logic of life does not tolerate permanent revolutions. They are possible on paper, but in real life, a revolution is only a means, a tool, but never an aim. It allows the destruction of obstacles which hinder a new construction. But destruction for destruction's sake is contrary to life. Every analysis is useful and even necessary. But when this analysis does not care about the results, when it excludes the task of finding a synthesis, it turns to its opposite, and instead of clarifying a problem, it only renders it more obscure. Life permits to our desire for knowledge and exploration the most daring and courageous excursions, but only to the explorers who, enticed far away into unknown territories, have not forgotten to notice the way by which they came and the aim for which they started. So some of that, I think, again, relates to this idea of, of knowing the rules so that you can break them. If you're exploring, it's good to notice what path you're following in your explorations and why you set out on your journey of exploration. It's not just about having a revolution for revolution's sake. You know, oh, I'm a radical artist. I'm going to be radical. Why are you being radical? I don't care. I'm just being radical. It's important to have an aim, as they talk about in the Gurdjieff work, an aim so that you know what you're doing. Again, that's a, a framework in which to uh, carry out creative explorations. You know, when you have an idea of something that you're looking for, it doesn't have to be a real specific idea, but just to know that you're exploring with something in mind, then you can connect to something practical and realistic. But if you're just randomly exploring, you know, children, very young children, randomly explore. That's natural. Babies crawl around. They stick everything in their mouth that they find on the floor. You got to watch them. <laughs> but as we get older, we're more responsible for our own creative energy. Whatever explorations we do, we have to not only consider responsibility for the consequences of our exploration, but also keep track of the path we followed. Because if we find something really great, we want to be able to communicate to other people how to get there because it may not be clear when you arrive at the end point of some exploration. If you haven't kept track of how you got there, helping other people to get there may not be possible or will be very difficult. So an aim, an aim, a context in which creative exploration is happening. It speaks of building a history through repetition. Mm. Through our craft, we build repetition, a history or following in the footsteps of the masters. And then once we've built that dialogue, then we could rebel against that dialogue. We can revolt and add our own flavor to that. Yeah. Yeah, the whole field in painting or the, the exercise in painting where students will copy a master's work or some part of a master's work. And uh, the idea isn't to create a forgery. <laughs> the idea is to understand something of how how the artist was thinking, how they were experiencing, what were their what's their relationship to the material. Why is that blue there? Why is that blue there? Well, if you start painting in that style or that subject matter, you start to understand why that blue is there. But from the outside, it may not make any sense at all. You were making the analogy with resistance along with our spiritual path. And I was thinking that what a beautiful thing it would be if we can recognize when we're procrastinating, recognize when we're wandering off our path or just resisting it, 
And in so doing, um, I was wondering if, especially you folks who are in the beautiful art of, of glass blowing and glass working, that I was wondering if you, if you often feel a lot of presence. I would think you would because you have to be so focused. And I would think that that would draw you in. Maybe there's even a feeling of co-creating with the glass. It just seems like it would be a beautiful way to experience spirituality through that. Yeah, glass is a highly addictive material. You know, any glass blower will tell you that because it does draw you into a certain zone. You know, there are thousands of people around the country, hobbyists making beads because it's awesome and fun and it's great stress relief. And uh, I'm not trying to sell you my how-to glass blowing books right now, but I did happen to write a couple of books about how to blow glass. Yes, it, it is a meditation, creating a rosary of beads, finding that zone where, where the work is making itself and it's using your hands to do it. I mean, I look for that. I, for me, it's like, what do I need to do to get myself into that place? So I've developed a, a vocabulary or a, an analogy would be like, you're not going to catch a bus unless you go to the bus stop and wait for that bus. So I just start working sometimes. And just that process, that process is going to bring you to a place where it, it's doing itself. Years ago, shortly after 911, I was so moved by you know, the shock of all of that that I began to write. And I wasn't a writer by trade or anything like that, but I began to write and I, I, it was like the writing, the words were coming through me. What was coming out of me profusely was my gratefulness, my gratitude for all the graces that I had experienced in my life. But shortly after starting all that, then I all of a sudden got this sort of negative feeling came over me like, well, who am I to write about grace? What the heck do I know about grace? So I said a really strong prayer and I basically asked, well, you know, I need to really know. Well, the next day, all of a sudden, it's like I heard these words in my head. The words are, our creativity speaks with God's voice. And so that was my answer. And I thank you for you artists who share your work with us because it inspires us, it moves us, we certainly need art in our world. I am one of the glass blowers, and um, I get so absorbed in the material as as we were discussing. It's so meditative that I I worry that I become a misanthrope. I definitely feel like one of the jobs of art and artists is to inspire other people to be creative, whether they're doing it in a, in a you know a quote creative medium or not but just for people to manifest creative energy in their lives by surrounding people with beautiful art. Uh, it gives life uh, a, a creative context in which to flourish, whether the people who have that art in their environment are doing, you know, quote, creative things or not. Do we have some definition of what beautiful art is? What was sort of behind that was talking about present or presence. And I would say beautiful art was created by someone who was in an essential state or condition. In the world of art criticism, there's certainly all kinds of debate about what's beautiful, what isn't beautiful. Does it even matter if it's beautiful? Is beautiful stupid? Is beautiful valid? You know, oh, that's too beautiful. Therefore, it's not valid art form or something, you know, kind of ridiculous like that. 
but I think your comment speaks to the point that beauty is something that we experience from, you know, works of art that are created by people who are in essentially in a beautiful state, you know, a state of awareness or clarity where their essential self is manifesting. You know, so even if they have an obnoxious personality, perhaps something of their essential nature is allowed to come through their art form. Of course, that can feed into the whole contemporary debate about whether we should cancel artists who are jerks, throw out their artwork. You know, should we never see you know, a Kevin Spacey movie again or a Woody Allen movie again? Should we throw them all in the dumpster? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I think that we respond to works where people are manifesting something of their deeper nature. And um, that comes through a kind of transcendence of the self, really. And that transcendence of the self, one way it can take place is through absorption in the work one is doing. You get in that creative zone where you're just out of the way and the work seems to be doing itself. Going into my studio, I think it's a process of literally and metaphorically throwing everybody out of the room, including my ego. And that's, that's when things really start to happen. I think there's a paradox also. Uh, very often, the more personal we get in our art, the more universal its appeal is. You know, the more people respond to it. But there's a couple of reasons for that. One has to do with the vulnerability that we're manifesting in the work. But I think also, when we get personal in the right way, not in a way that's self-indulgent, whiny and self-indulgent about our, our little personality, but if we get into that which is personal for us on a deeper level, then we're contacting our more essential self, or can be. And I think when that happens, other people will resonate with that. So in that respect, when I make something more personal to me, it's more universal because it contacts that which is more essential in the viewer. And that's, you know, that's a very satisfying experience. I think a lot of artists aspire to that. But it's not just superficial beauty of like just what's pretty to look at, you know. This is a quote from Barry Lopez. In every culture in which I have encountered formal elders, the people who carry the history of what will work and what won't, I find them to be among the relatively few people in those cultures, adept at thinking and working outside the constructs of their own metaphors and myths, while at the same time, attending to the ways in which their history is compelling them to act. They know the difference between a world that is being imposed on them and the freedom to choose the life they want. What upends elders is the seductive attraction of that imposed world, the allure of material comfort and wealth, the advertiser's promise to satisfy every appetite. All of this they regard as venal, they see succumbing to it without questioning, without resistance, as a desire to die. So he was talking in the context of you know, traditional cultures around the world and the challenges they face from what you might call the dominant culture or the modern, modern Western society coming in and, and subverting their traditional lifestyles and saying, here, this is much better to give up what you're doing, do what we're doing. Elders in those cultures are sometimes the only ones who are, who are kind of holding the line of what the values are, what really 
is a sane relationship to uh, to life and to the planet. Yeah, to give in without resistance to the offers of the you know modern world, to them looks like a desire to die. In terms of creativity, let's see if we can tie that into the rest of the talk. I'm not sure why I pulled that quote out, but it jumped out at me. You know, there's change. So, so he's saying that change happens. You know, a lot of the people in these cultures, they know that they can't keep modern society away. You can't keep it away forever. It just encroaches on everything. But how do you maintain a relationship to that that is, um, you know, that holds your traditional values of humanity? Not that you have to retain even every, um, every mythical creation story. When you start to study biology, you realize that God did not pull man out of a tree stump or whatever the local mythology might be. Um, but how, what do you hold? What do you hold on to in the midst of what might seem very creative, some new form that life is taking? How do you hold something that is, is, more, that is real? Um, that has been developed in a creative framework over you know, maybe thousands of years. When I think of the children of our country who are so attached to technology, and not that you can't create art with technology, people do amazing things with technology, whether it's music or art or whatever. But at the same time, say in Arizona, the petroglyphs that we see, that you know, you just wonder who that person was and and what was in their spirit when they were drawing that. And now when I see children get so attached and mesmerized and, and uh, clinging to their technology, it kind of makes me nervous because I'd like to see with, I'm with those elders, I guess, wanting to make sure we're coming from the heart and, and teaching a child what's inside. Yeah, thank you. Now you've got me thinking about tradition and the value of it but also with tradition you know life has to be new there has to be the a wellspring of like it being something that's happening now we can't be living in the past either so it's kind of a paradox i mean there's a lot of value in in tradition and we're living now, so how to apply that? And really, that's kind of the idea of these talks, is how can we use traditional spiritual teaching and understanding and bring it into the present? Some of the people on the, at the talk tonight are specifically involved in art. Many of us are not. But I think that the principle is the same. When I get out of my own way, life is new and it's creative. Life is very creative then. Maybe there's more of a sense of reality 